Welcome to the Kentucky Conservation Conversation, an outreach of the Jefferson County Soil and Water Conservation District. Find out more about us at jeffcd.org, including the schedule of our monthly meetings and events, which are open to the public. Hello, Jefferson County. Today we will be talking with Blair from Idlewild Butterfly Farm. She'll discuss her efforts in urban conservation as well as the challenges they have faced during the pandemic. I'm Blair Liano Helvey, and I am the owner of Idlewild Butterfly Farm. Um, for those of us who don't know what Idlewild is, or maybe you're not from Louisville, what do you guys do at Idlewild? Um, we play with bugs. But we actually, <laughs> we're actually several businesses in one. We, uh, we raise butterflies, of course, natives, Kentucky natives. Um, we are a USDA permitted, so we have a permit that allows us to uh, import and breed uh, exotic insects, and we also educate and distribute beneficial organisms for agriculture. How did you get to a point in your life where your official job title is, I play with bugs, because I feel like that probably <laughs> lit some eyes up out there. Um, I needed a job, really, uh, and that's honestly that's the honest truth. Um, I have a degree, I have a Bachelor of Science in agriculture, but I specialize, or it was an emphasis on entomology. So I actually started in music performance and then switched majors, and I was looking at horticulture. And I found that the College of Ag at U- UK offered entomology, and that was more, I always loved bugs. So that was a good fit. Um, when you say that you offer bugs for agriculture, what does that mean? Well, we use bugs instead of drugs. So good, good invertebrates. It's not just uh, insects. It's also uh, mites um, uh, and other organisms that are used for pest control instead of insecticides. What are some species that you've had a lot of success with for folks here? Well, right now we're still selling controls for chiggers, um, which are actually two mites that are native here. Uh, so how biological control works is that you're you're kind of bombing an area with mass amounts of these good organisms uh, to combat the bad bugs. So we take these organisms in big numbers and we put them whether we're in a greenhouse, farm, landscape, you know, home, or I'm sorry, in the like home garden. We release these creatures and it's not a quick fix. It takes time. Um, but for example, like the, the chicken controls that we're using, these are two um, mass amounts of native uh, beneficials and it's long-term control. So, and one of those that we use is also very good for controlling fleas in the garden. Really? Yes. What? Long-term control. What are those two species? One is called, it's their big names. One is Stratiolelops simitis, and that is a beneficial mite. And the other, I can't pronounce the genus very well, but the uh, species is Phalasis, Phalasis mites. And those are, also, those are actually probably two 
very common beneficials that um, is used heavily in greenhouse, but also home and landscape. Um, so one thing we like to do here is to connect things back to conservation. So can you talk about the work that you've been doing here in Louisville, maybe some of the events that you've done in the past? Of course, this year has been like a one-off for everybody, but events you've done in the past and ways that you have brought these insects into the community and like help raised awareness for that sort of thing? Well, it was 2009 that I started the beneficial part of the business. Uh, you know, so being young mom, uh, new business, it was quite the learning experience, you know, being in Kentucky, <laughs> doing something totally weird, but it's not a new science. I mean, biological control is an old science. I mean, prior to World War II, there were many insectariums that, and insectariums are bug factories, basically, that raise these beneficial organisms. And after World War II, of course, you know, DDT is, is made, um, and there went the insectariums, literally. It, DDT was easy to use. It really worked. You didn't have to monitor or, you know, scout for pests. You just applied it. But, uh, but 2009 started this business and I vividly remember being in the grocery store and seeing Jim Wallach. He's the owner of uh, Wallach um, Greenhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought if I could get one big name and get them to switch to biological control, then that might help me. And he was my first greenhouse operation that I converted to, uh, good bugs and not drugs. So get them off the insecticides. So one of your goals, it sounds like was to start moving people away from the conventional, um, oft-tried methods of managing pests that were not part of a holistic plan for for soil and environment yes yes Uh, but you know working with I don't I've worked with single greenhouses I've worked I've done the largest I've done has been about five acres of greenhouse I've done uh, landscape companies I've done I've worked with you know several different groups within the, you know, commercial growers world. And I'm kind of a point now that I don't actively go after those folks. And I focus more on homeowners. And again, it's education. It's, it's not that I don't believe in the science. It's a lot of work when you're dealing with a grower. And it's, it's a lot of what we have handholding. Uh, depending on the class of insecticides that growers are using, uh, it can be very challenging to convert those growers. Um, you know, if we're working with a grower that is using, you know, neonicotinoids, often it is going to be a challenge, but it can be done. I mean, most of the growers I've worked with have all been neonicotinoid users. <laughs> so, so um, a question that a lot of people might be having right now is if this is easy, if just spraying it is easy, why would I switch? Why would I decide to do something different that is a lot more challenging and intense? Well, in terms of uh, a greenhouse grower, most of the time when a greenhouse grower contacts me, 
it is because they can no longer chemically gain control of their pest situation. Insects go through natural selection very quickly. You can have, say, for example, we're dealing with aphids. Well, you can spray the aphids and you can kill all but one. And that one aphid now is resistant to that chemical. So what happens is the chemical insecticide starts working against the grower. So then you start, you, you're throwing everything in your chemical arsenal at it, and it's there. it actually starts doing the opposite of what you want it to do. Um, so there is that. So, you know, we, we are, they can't become resistant to predators and parasitoids. Uh, we, a grower doesn't have to worry about a re-entry interval, uh, which is the time that you have to wait uh, to go into a greenhouse or an area that has been sprayed. Um, and it, you're also looking at long-term control. So I always, you know, my formula with greenhouse growers is the first year they don't like me. The second year they tolerate me. The third year they love me <laughs> because it's always working yourself in a way. It's like working yourself out of business. If you're doing biocontrol because a greenhouse, I always love the greenhouses that are, extremely toxic with chemicals because it's going to take a lot of bugs to get that (laughs) under control but it's never if it gives you an example i had a a very large grower first year you know he spent about fourteen thousand dollars in bugs the second year he spent about eight thousand dollars in bugs and then the third season it was like six thousand dollars of the bugs so you know it's it's basically working yourself out of business because you're changing the ecosystem inside the house and a lot of those bugs are on the outside of the house, so they're making buffer zones. So to put that in perspective, what do you know what folks were spending on pesticide before they were spending um, on your more natural methods? A lot more. <laughs> but, but, you know, and then you don't have to, you know, when you're, if you're doing things properly in a greenhouse, if you're spraying, you have to take... Uh, you have to account for the days and what you're spraying. You have to suit up if you're doing it properly. Um, and then again, you're dealing with like the reentry intervals and all everything that goes with that. On biocontrol, to be effective in biocontrol, you actually have to scout. You need to know what your pests are. And a lot of times I would come across growers that didn't really know what they were dealing with or what the problem was because they're just using a spray because it's, you know, the easiest thing to do. Um, but, you know, understanding, you know, before climate change, we were able to do something called like a degree day analysis where we could pinpoint uh, the days of uh, emerging pests. And with these crazy, this crazy weather, it's it's hard to do degree day analysis now. So we just, I do, I can tell you that, you know, spring equi- after spring equinox, that's when things started kind of wreaking havoc in the in a greenhouse because that's when all the bad bugs start waking up. Um, can can we talk about can we give a little perspective to um, the terms you're using bad mm-hmm. bugs versus good bugs? Mm-hmm. So bad bugs is is what it is. You know you're you're dealing with many different um, insects or mites that are bad but we also have insects and mites that are good and in the good bug world and that also includes your pollinators Uh, you've got your predators so in the predator world things can be very host specific meaning it's one pest that eats this bug specifically or they can be a generalist predator 
An exam- a good example of a generalist predator would be a praying mantis. Uh, you know, they eat everybody, including their brothers and sisters. Um, and then you have your parasitoids. Parasitoids are wasps. Uh, you say wasps and people panic, but many of these wasps are very tiny mm-hmm. and they are host specific, meaning that they lay their eggs inside or outside of their host. So when you say bad bug, you mean that it's destroying a crop or it is altering the ecosystem in a way that is not helpful, is damaging economically and ecologically, is that? Well, it, well what happens is that things are out of whack. I mean, it's, when I'm in a greenhouse, when I'm scouting in a landscape, I want to, if I'm looking for bugs, I want to find more beneficials and good bugs than bad bugs. So in the insect world, your parasitoids, your beneficial, your predators, they all reproduce slower in nature uh, to ensure that the, they have something to eat. And again, that's why we're using big, big numbers. And I like to have, I like to see different life stages of beneficials present. You want, you want everything, you want the life cycle cyclical, meaning I want every life stage present so it's just they're actively growing and reproducing. Gotcha. Um, so what does a normal year for you look like um, at the shop? Normal. <laughs> Nothing normal. It's um, not normal. In terms of specifically the programs that you offer through your space, you guys are on Logan Street, right? We're on Logan Street. So um, in a normal year, you know, you had asked me a few minutes back how we came to be. So, yeah, so in 2009, so I'll back up just a little bit and then get into the programs or how we started. 2009, started the business. In 2011, um, I started and ran a farmer's market and for four years. And in that time, I was looking for something else that was insect-related that would extend my period, or my, my growing season. Um, or, so because we primarily would follow, follow greenhouse. So greenhouse season starts roughly in January and by Derby, I was finished. So I had all summer. So I started raising butterflies and I, when I was in school, I worked in insect physiology. So I, I got a lot of experience uh, raising insect systems. So I would take these butterflies and little cages to the farmer's market and to see if there was any interest because many people had never experienced metamorphosis or seeing a butterfly emerge uh, so I would take them and I would sell out I and think that's probably the first time that I met you was maybe at the Douglas Loop Farmers Market could be um, I remember taking those homes it was such a wonderful experience right yeah because many it is a great and it's a great way to teach you know metamorphosis and, and insect world and we see metamorphosis every day at Idlewild and it's we're still amazed every single time. Um, and so when we were coming up with this plan for Idlewild, um, I traveled, I went to insectariums, I went to butterfly farms, I went here, there and everywhere. And I thought, well, if we're going to go into debt, why don't we just go into more debt and have build out our, you know, our USDA certified lab. And that way we can have these exotic insects because I was just going to throw it all at the wall to see, what would stick, you know, something niche, something strange, something new, you know, anything to try to get people in the door. 
so we got the lab. Um, that was, so we opened in 2015 and we actually got our certification for the lab, uh, that, that October. Um, and then we just started coming up with doing tours. Maybe people want to see what goes on in an insect lab. Those started getting really popular. Well, then you get in, then it came to like, we're getting Halloween. What are we going to do? So then (laughs) then creepy things came, you know, celebrate creepy things where we, we do, you know, all our arachnids and things that people don't like. And then we also do like a, a medical entomology program. We can talk about the plague and all the fun things. Well, I remember, we fun, but people don't. Not everybody thinks it's fun. But I remember being um, in the greenhouse. <clears throat> excuse me, at Halloween, and I was there with a person who really did not like spiders, but was humoring me. Um, and I, you walked in and you started petting a spider, and I was like, I've got to be friends with this woman. <laughs> <laughs> this is well, the- and I think you know because a lot of because we would do a lot of, when we would be asking for spiders like bring us spiders and we will give you passes mm-hmm. we'll give you free passes um and so that's how we would get a lot of spiders for our exhibit uh for the spider house and that wasn't actually something that we came up with on our own we actually borrowed that idea from the um la county uh science museum in california and uh the new orleans insectarian people do something very similar they also would collect spiders for us and um but it's a great way to educate, you know, spiders are extremely beneficial and it just hurts my heart when people kill them. Um, especially garden spiders. They're very, they're way more scared of us uh, than we are, than we should be of them. Honestly. Um, people just have, I think it is, I think scientists have proven that the fear of spiders is in our DNA. So maybe there were spiders that were larger than us. I don't know, but people are, uh, very afraid of spiders um, only I, a couple times have we really had people just absolutely melt down. I used to have a snake that, um, he was, his name was Neil. He was a corn snake. He was about 17 and, and he had been in captivity his whole life. So he was really chill in programs cause he knew the drill. And I had seen him take people from, I don't even want to be in the room with this two in 20 minutes. Like, well, how can I protect snakes? He's great. I'm like, I know. Um, so education really does take people a long way to help break the stigma, and it does it. It's so quick. Yes, yes. Um, you know, I was never very fond of spiders either when I was when I was younger. I always preferred insects over the arachnids. But the more we're around it, and we also have Rachel at work. I I, I feel like you've met Rachel, and when we get started, great. Yes, yeah. she's fantastic, and she's our person that, well, we don't know the behavior of this, so we'll watch you hold it first. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Rachel. There's a, on Instagram from like three Halloweens ago, we got these huge Nephila orb weaver spiders out of Malaysia, and I think people, I think we lost Instagram followers. <laughs> um, she took this thing out of the container, and I mean, when its legs are out, I mean, it's as big as your face. It's just oh a my huge God. spider, and people just lost it. I we used to, we feel like always around October, right before Halloween, when we started doing a lot more of the creepy crawlies, like the arach- in, in, in any of the arachnids. People quit following us and they come back in butterflies. And stuff. So <laughs> I mean, there are people that really detest spite. Well, I, you know, my fear is I never like planes. 
people do not like flying with me. So that's my um, irrational fear for sure. Um, so I get it. And we'd have people, we have people that come in that don't like, that are very terrified of butterflies. That's always one that really, like, I, I try to be, I try to have as much empathy for people and what they're not comfortable with in nature as I can, because it's really my job to make people feel safe. But that is one that I always struggle with, like, going there with people and, like, understanding why butterflies make them nervous. And I've tried several times, like, well, what is it? And, like, it's, it's how it is with spiders and snakes. They're like, it's the way they move way they move makes me feel uncomfortable and I'm like they're floating they're a leaf like I don't understand but that's their thing and we're gonna respect it yeah absolutely I always loved creatures if I would have lived by uh, an ocean I I probably or I probably would have done marine biology I just don't think that the creatures get a whole lot of love and people would just take the time when you're looking at these very specialized systems you know when you're looking at insect plant interactions or very specialized you know there are examples of one species of insect that pollinates one species of plant i mean these are very intricate specialized systems and it's it's just a it's mind-blowing to me and but a lot of this goes on on such a small level people aren't paying attention and that's part of our job too is to talk about why these systems are important and how they impact us and to make science accessible and easy for people to understand so yeah how has uh so you i see you all at the zoo and i see you at farmers markets i see you a lot of places. How has uh, coronavirus affected how you have been able to do business and what course corrections have you had to make to continue to do your work? Well, we should have about eight employees and we're working about two and a half. So there's that. So it's, we've done zero programs this season. So no programs, no tours. We just cannot do it's hard to ask your employees to do something if you yourself is, are not willing to do those things. At least that is for me. Yeah. And the employees that are still there, you know, what, what makes you feel comfortable? Well, not have, not doing tours, not having, you know, cause we have a very small space and, you know, we, it's very hands-on and it's very interactive and you just can't comfortably do that. Um, at Idlewild. We just can't. Um, so we definitely were impacted in terms of not being able to do tours. And, you know, we do, we come to camps, a lot of different camps around town or in the state, um, and, and bring the, the bug show. So that's been nothing. Uh, we have done some online, uh, Rachel's been very good about doing like Q and A's or doing, you know, Facebook lives and doing, you know, a bug of the week or something like that. We've had, Folks that are on staff at UK uh, do some lives for us. Um, so there's that. But we have really um, upped the number of plants and butterfly kits, chrysalids, things like that. I mean, that has been more than we've ever done since we've been open. One thing that we saw this year at the Conservation District um, it has been this huge influx in first-time gardeners 
and people they're at home and they can finally, you know, they've got the time on their hands to finally do this garden that they've been thinking about. What do you all have at Idlewild to offer these folks who are spending more time and getting more familiar with their backyards? Definitely a lot. We, we have always kind of sold some vegetable plants, but we do sell seed savers um, seeds. And that was something else that went off the shelf were seeds. We sold a ton of seeds uh, when everything shut down. So we've switched from a, you know, open store uh, to everything online, curbside delivery uh, model. And so right now what we have, like we're offering, we started offering vegetable plants, like really kind of pushing vegetable plants that are grown with good bugs, not drugs and love, you know? So, Mm -hmm. uh, so we did pretty well with that for some, you know, for fall and summer veggies. Um, we just started offering our fall cold crops now. Um, and we also sell natives, this plant, I'm sorry, fall is a great time to plant your pollinator patches and your butterfly gardens or your monarch way stations. This is a great time to do it. So we sell plants that are grown by um, ironweed nursery and drop seed nursery, both women owned, both in Kentucky. And we do great with it. We do great with their plants. So if folks want to check out what you all have, what's your website? IowaButterflyFarm.com. I was wondering, where did the name Idlewild come from? Well, (laughs) when when we were coming up with names for the butterfly, it was going to be called Madam's Butterflies, but it didn't sound like we were really selling butterflies. (laughs) I mean, we are kind of a brothel of sort, like a bug brothel, um, but it it very, (laughs) it said a very red Uh, Uh light-ish. We were just trying to look for other things, and, you know, Idlewild was was the original name of the Belle of Louisville. Oh, I didn't know that. So it was the Idlewild, then it was the Avalon, and then now it's the Belle of Louisville. Are you originally kind of partial to Madam's Butterflies? Right. (laughs) (laughs) To the surprise of no one, let's be honest. Um, Are you from Louisville? I am from Louisville. Okay. Um, one of the things you all are known for in Louisville is your work with Monarch Butterflies and Release. So what's going on with that this season? Oh, it's, we're, we're in the month of, or going into the month of absolute insanity. It is time to start raising. So we are doing Flutterfest at the zoo. Granted, it's going to be virtual, but we tag and release a thousand monarchs for the zoo. And we also offer uh, tagging kits uh, usually around the third, we usually time that for right after Flutterfest. So Flutterfest this year is on the 19th of September. So around that week and the week after is when we'll start offering, you know, chrysalis kits with tags or butterflies with tags so people can do them at home and release them. Uh, so we, monarchs, we always laugh are the easiest but hardest bu- butterfly to raise. Uh, they're totally iconic. Everybody loves monarch butterfly, but we pride ourselves in raising healthy butterflies for release. So it's, it, this is the hardest time of year in some ways to raise them because, you know, butter, butterflies are more abundant at the end of the season because they've had all season to build up their, their numbers 
in their broods. Um, and so monarchs can carry, or lots of butterflies can carry disease, but there's a specific protozoan that is, uh, that's naturally occurring in the monarchs. And it's a very, very long name and we just call it OE. And so it's, it can be a real problem. Again, it's naturally occurring, but in a breeding capacity or, you know, when you're mass rearing, it can be devastating. And that's one of the ways that Idlewild came to be as well, because I was raising all these monarchs at my house. And that last brood I raised, I had to freeze all of them. And it was just heartbreaking. And you freeze and them be- as a humane way of yes, euthanizing yes, them. Yeah. Yes. And so OE, um, what happens is it's very sticky and they just don't emerge well. Um, but I have found, I have scouted butterflies in, in nature that are monarchs that are just huge and beautiful and just filthy with OE, which to me is good genetics. If you've got a big healthy butterfly that emerged just fine with all those spores on it. I mean, that's very good genetics. Um, So that's, that's the issue. You know, everything has to be very, very sanitary and we don't want to get too many wild monarchs on our milkweeds that we use to raise the butterfly. So it's a protozoan that is ingested by the monarch caterpillar. Um, and that's what it is. So that's what makes life kind of complicated in September. Plus we're also raising all the rest of our butterflies to go to sleep for winter that we need in spring to start things back up. What other so species do you have? We raise every species of swallowtail here in Kentucky. Um, that's kind of our other specialty or, or swallowtails. Uh, we raise several different species of moths lunas monarchs are your best seller lunas are second Uh, so we have some other big silk moths that we raise we have some hickory horn devils Um, those a lot of times we use for our programs so we just try to always have some on hand for under normal circumstances those would be going to schools with us so people could see them many people have not ever seen a hickory horn devil um You've seen hickory horn devils, though, I assume. Uh, probably. <laughs> if not, I will immediately look one up and attach yes, it in the show notes. So yes. let's let's uh, do a little educating right now because I know that okay. there's a thing that happens in publications um, written by lay people about butterflies that makes you absolutely insane is when they are writing about monarchs, but they put a picture of a viceroy. That's my favorite. That's one of my favorites. I just posted because to me, that's lazy journalism. Yes, it's an easy mistake. How can we avoid making it as budding entomologists in Louisville? So if you're looking at the monarchs and you're looking at the viceroy, the viceroy have this um, vein on the the wing, on the hind wing, that is uh, a vertical line. And that is the telltale sign. So monarchs are poisonous the milkweed makes them poisonous so the viceroy butterfly is a mimic of the monarch so now i want everyone to go to google and i want you to type in monarch butterfly and search the news and i want you to go through and see how many of these stories are you really using viceroy just to test your knowledge because now you know the difference yes so and but you know people are out there in their i think it's great that you yeah you, that people are interested and you, we raise a lot of zebra swallowtails and people think it's something exotic and it's like, no, they're, they, their host plant is a pawpaw tree. Yep. Oh so man. I think if we, that's another popular one that we sell or pawpaw trees. They, we don't keep them long. 
I have a pawpaw tree in my backyard and I just love looking at it every day and I'm like, grow little one. I want to watch you flourish. I know. So it's, you know, people are paying attention. I mean, when we first started, we would dare talk about climate change. I mean, good grief. Um, And now I think people, they care, but I also think a lot of people are scared too, which might be what we need. It's like, how far are we willing to push this until we do nothing until it's too late to do anything. Um, And our grocery stores would, I mean, there's, you know, in China, there are parts of China that they were hand pollinating fruit trees. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, No, I can't actually. (laughs) Intense. It's, it is intense. Um, But that's what's happening is you're having, you know, call, of uh your beneficials your pollinators yeah wax moths i sent you a picture earlier today but wax moths got my eyes yeah i was like well i need to clean these frames out um girls here (laughs) take care of this um and they did they loved it and i made sure that they it's the thing that they were allowed to eat and they did a better job than i could have of getting those out of their Least of all, because wax moths are one of those things where I'm like, you are so devastating and I hate you so much. I can't even look at you. So I'm glad that I had my chickens to help me manage that situation. And people contact us a lot about their beehives and we are not, I'm bee, I am a bee uh, loser, not a beekeeper. Um, <laughs> we focus uh, much more on the native pollinators, uh, which is, I'm starting to see people understand that there are a lot more pollinators than the honeybee mm-hmm. um but I, I like honey too i'm not i'm not dissing um honeybees at all um, we have a really wonderful we have a really wonderful network of beekeepers in louisville i feel so I might have between the kba and other folks i feel like we've probably got honeybee education covered and it's good that you're bringing these other options to life because you know beekeeping isn't for everyone People, some people are terrified no, of bees. I can, I can attest to that. I failed. <laughs> we, had some, we had some hives at Idlewild, and it was like, this is just a failure. So we'll just focus on the things that don't take effort, like the, you know, just planting a little habitat and they will come. I mean, we mm-hmm. posted pictures all summer long of, you know, your, the gentle leaf cutter bees, um, which, if you look, many times pe- they describe, um, it, you know, when you've got a colony of them because. The female, they're solitary bees, and the females take little half moons out of leaves. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, you'll see it described as damage, um, which, in my eyes, is success. If you have that, then you have a healthy, you have a healthy yard. Mm-hmm. So my best advice is, I if I can get even people that you know have like a home lawn care, if you can talk to those folks and just convince them, you know, just to spare a, a, an area of the yard, even if it's just in in pots. And dedicate an area that they're not going to spray. You have to show people what what it is that they're missing out on. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you don't have to build a whole. You don't have to landscape everything all at once. Um, a little bit at a time, uh, but even just a little bit of habitat goes a long way. Yeah, especially when there's not much left, it makes a huge difference. 
Yeah, and there's a huge, uh, like a Kentucky seed swap. Have you looked at the seed swap on, on Facebook? That's another I have, a yeah. great way to get some free seeds. Um, we always have a lot of seeds and we try to, you know, hand them out or they're here if you want to pick them up. So there, there are a lot of folks out there in our area that, that are doing a lot of good work. I'm happy that they're here. I think that for all of the devastation that we've seen from from COVID-19, I think that people are getting reacquainted with what's really important and what they want to be in touch with. And I think that's why the gardens are taking off, why it's almost impossible to get, if you haven't already ordered them, chickens are selling out because people are realizing the security that's in a small patch reserved for pollinators that's in you know having some some backyard chickens that's in having a garden and reconnecting with that so um, I think that's a great thing well Blair thank you so much for your time and uh, I will link to your website in the show notes and let well, people thank you you're welcome have a great night you too bye-bye Thanks. Thanks for joining us today. Blair's website, as well as the picture of the hickory horn double, will be in the show notes. Don't forget to check out our website for upcoming events, and we'll talk to you soon.